Daniel 11. We're going to read the whole chapter. Daniel 11, verse 1. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority which he wielded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. Then the king of the south will grow strong, along with one of his princes, who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His dominion will be a great dominion indeed. After some years they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power. But she will be given up, along with those who brought her in, and the one who sired her, as well as he who supported her in those times. But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place, and he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he will deal with them and display great strength. Also their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, he will take into captivity to Egypt, and he on his part will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but will return to his own land. Everybody following so far? <laughs> his sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through, that he may again wage war up to his very fortress. The king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. When the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cause tens of thousands to fall, yet he will not prevail. For the king of the north will again raise a great multitude than the former, greater multitude, and after an interview of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. Then the king of the north will come, cast up a siege ramp, and capture a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. He will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many, but a commander will... Put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. So he will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. Then in his place, one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Yet within a few days, he will be shattered, though not in anger nor in battle. In his place, a 
despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception, and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm, and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them, and he will devise his schemes among, against strongholds, but only for a time. He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war. But he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. Those who eat his choice food will destroy him, and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table. But it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south, but this last time it will not turn out the way it did before. For ships of Katim will come against him. Therefore he will be disheartened and he will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. But smooth words, by smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help and many will join them in hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine purge and make them pure until the time of the end because it is still to come at the appointed time then the king will do as he pleases and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods and he will prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women nor will he show regard for any other god, he, for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead he will honor a god of fortresses, a god whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out the land for a price." At the, end, at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. And he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall. But these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. 
but he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt, and Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. Everybody understood? <laughs> Good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, the truth, the scriptures of truth. We thank you for this precious chapter in the book of Daniel. And even though at first, Lord, it may seem um, unhelpful and strange, we thank you, Lord, for this, the gift of this chapter, the gift of this vision. We pray that this morning you would help us begin to reflect on this and understand it. We pray that you would help us to grasp what it is you want us to grasp in this vision. We pray that we'd be changed by it. We pray that we'd be challenged by it. We pray, Lord, that we would understand and that you would be honored and glorified in how we think about it and in what it teaches us about you. Be honored and glorified in our in our midst and in this time, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we begin our examination this morning of the content of the last vision in the book of Daniel. And this last vision, which and the content of it is found in chapter 11 and chapter 12, the intro is found in chapter 10. The content, this last vision, is, is truly the climax of the book of Daniel. This is it. What we just read, this is the climax right here. And that might sound strange to us, but it is. It's the longest vision in the book of Daniel. It's certainly the most detailed vision in the book of Daniel. And interestingly, it's the most cited vision of the book of Daniel. Remember who cites this? Jesus cites it. Paul cites it. Revelation refers to it. It's the most cited. And so in many ways, it is the most important. And I hope by the end of this sermon, or by the end of our looking at this vision over the next couple of weeks, you'll see that this is a crucial vision in the book of Daniel. And indeed, it's climax. Daniel chapter 10, as I said, was the intro to this vision. And this intro shows us the importance of this vision. First of all, this vision gets a whole chapter as an introduction. And also, part of that introduction is this awesome angelic visitation that Daniel gets that he didn't get for any other uh, vision. I mean, he, there are some angels that visit him, but nothing this awesome, nothing this physically intense, right? He's either interpreting somebody else's dream, having a dream, or talking with an angel, but nothing this physically intense that we saw in the last chapter. I mentioned as we were going through this series that chapter 2 of Daniel gives us the fundamental prophecy, and by that I mean the basic prophecy. It's, the, it's just the basic, bare-bones, uh, quick, bird's-eye view of what's going to happen. The nations are going to run their course, and in the end, the kingdom of God is going to be set up. And all the other visions and prophecies in Daniel just elaborate upon that fundamental one in chapter 2. I mentioned that in chapter 9, this was the covenantal backbone of the entire book of, of Daniel. It's, it's the theological backbone. It, it gives us the... The, the covenant framework that Israel 
runs into all the problems that they run into and suffers all the things that they suffer. And why is that? Because of the covenant that they made with God at Mount Sinai and because they broke that covenant, they didn't obey the law. And God's simply fulfilling his word that if you don't obey the law, I'm going to send armies against you and famines against you and kick you out of the land that I gave you. And so all of these troubles we're reading about and even the Babylonian captivity itself has to be understood with that covenant background. So that's the, the, important of ch- the importance of chapter 9. But now that we have the basics, now that we have the covenantal backbone, God grants to Daniel and to us this last, longest, and most detailed prophecy. It's the culmination of all that went before. It's building now upon the previous visions. If there's any doubts about our interpretation of the previous visions, this chapter will settle them. So, this chapter really makes or breaks your interpretation of the the prophecies of Daniel. You have to take all the prophecies of Daniel and all the visions of Daniel together. They're inseparable. There's lots of clues scattered all throughout them that shows that we're really talking about the exact same thing in each vision, in each prophecy. And it's no different with chapter 11. Chapter 11 is talking about the same thing as we're going to see with the other chapters, the other visions before. And since it's so detailed, it really makes or break your interpretation makes or breaks your interpretation of the previous visions. If you have an interpretation of chapter 2 or chapter 7 that's false, chapter 11 is going to show that it's false because it's so detailed. That's what makes this chapter so important. The vision of 11 and 12 also has all the major themes that we've looked at in the book of Daniel so far. And all of those themes are actually heightened and intensified. For example, the theme of God's sovereignty is clearly here. You've got an introduction that basically says there's these angelic battles that are going on in heaven. So we see that actually what's going on on the earth is really because of what's going on up in heaven, a a strong um, indicator and proof of God's sovereignty. And also throughout this chapter, you may have noticed there's lots of phrases that indicate the sovereignty of God, like only that which is decreed will happen. It's going to happen at the set time, at the appointed time, right? Over and over and over again. Who's doing the appointing? Who's doing the setting? Who's doing the decreeing? God. And so God's sovereignty, again, is stressed here. One of the themes we've already seen is how God gives a prophetic program or a prophetic map uh, to his people. Here's another one. In fact, this is the most detailed of them all. We saw a theme in Daniel of the righteous being delivered. And in this vision we have, once again, the righteous delivered in an ultimate sense. We're going to see in chapter 12 that Daniel says, your people will be delivered and there'll be a resurrection from the dead. (laughs) That's ultimate deliverance. Resurrection from the dead is even more ultimate than being delivered out of the lion's den or out of the fire. So we see this theme of the righteous delivered intensified. And also, lastly, if you remember, that important theme of the wicked and the proud being judged. We have it also here in the final vision. The proud man is going to be judged. In fact, this isn't just a general theme of proud men. This is the proud man. This is the evil man. This is the Antichrist. He is going 
to be judged by God. I'd like to make this very clear, otherwise you'll miss the whole point of this vision, that the main emphasis and the main focus of this last prophecy is the figure of Antichrist. This despicable person that we ran into in verse 21. Did you notice that? Did you notice that the first part of the chapter is a little bit confusing and who's who and what's what? But then when you hit 21, we run into an individual, we run into a person that, that lasts for the rest of the chapter. Clearly, this individual is the spotlight and there can be no dispute that this, is, this person is what this vision is all about. Everything else in this vision is just simply setting the stage for the appearance of this figure or it's just wrapping up what it said about this figure. It's the same figure that we've seen in other visions. In chapter 10, he's called the little horn. In chapter 8, he's also called the little horn. And chapter 8 bears the most resemblance to chapter 11, if you compare them. A clear resemblance in both of those. But here we have a full picture of this individual. Verse 21 all the way to verse 45 is all about this despicable person. That's over 50% of this chapter that we just read. Over 50% is about this one individual. So this is important, this man, and it's critical that we don't miss that. Everybody got that? Logged, logged in? It's about this individual. That's what this last vision is about. This morning and next week, we're going to look at Daniel chapter 11 and we're going to be talking about the Antichrist. That will be the, the theme and the subject of this sermon and the next sermon will be this man, the Antichrist. And we are going to seek to understand, just like Daniel sought to understand. So that's just your, your warning. That's what we're going to be talking about here, the Antichrist. Although the term Antichrist is actually only found in 1 John in the Bible, and in 1 John, John is mostly talking about Antichrist not as a person, but as a principle. Nonetheless, the term Antichrist has been the term that has been used by Christians throughout history for the last 2,000 years to refer to this person and to refer to this man. You can just... Type in Antichrist on Google and you'll be able to find teachers and commentators from basically every century who talk about the person of Antichrist. And John also uses the term Antichrist for a person as well. He just focuses more on, on this pattern or this type or this spirit of Antichrist that's already at work. So John says in his letter, you guys have heard that Antichrist is coming, right? And everyone says, yeah, we've heard that lots of times. There's a real impression in the Bible in the New Testament that they've heard a lot about this guy. And so John is letting them know, yeah, you've heard that Antichrist is coming. I want you to know that his spirit is already here. He's already at work. Or there's patterns and types of Antichrist now at work. There's a principle of Antichrist preceding his coming. Peter talks about a principle or a spirit of Christ preceding even the coming of Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he says that the spirit of Christ was in the prophets when they were prophesying of the coming of Christ, his sufferings and his glory to follow. So Jesus Christ, the person, before he ever came, the spirit of Christ was in the earth at work, in work in the prophets. 
And in the same way, the spirit of the Antichrist is at work before the person of the Antichrist comes. You don't have to pick either or. You don't have to say, I only believe Antichrist is a principle, or I only believe Antichrist is a person. Both. It's, it's a principle because it's a person. This person is the climax, the ultimate expression of the principle that, that precedes him. Now turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul says the exact same thing that John does. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is easily one of the most important and clear teachings on the Antichrist in the New Testament. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at verse 1. Now we request Now we request you brethren Everyone there? Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or by a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So he's saying, don't be freaked out if someone tells you the day of the Lord has come. It hasn't. And here's why it hasn't. Verse 3, let no one in any way deceive you. For it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That's a citation from Daniel 11. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? So you see, the Apostle Paul would talk about this with people when he was with them. See, brothers and sisters, to, to, to think about and to talk about the Antichrist is apostolic. It's not modern Christianity. It's not uh, speculative Christianity. It's not newspaper Christianity. This is something the apostles did. They talked about Antichrist. They taught about him. They thought about him. They studied the scriptures on Antichrist. And if you aren't doing that, then there is a lack in your Christianity. You're not being fully apostolic. True or false? Is that, is that, am I saying too much there? If you're saying, I don't want to study Antichrist, I don't want to study in times, you're not being apostolic because the apostles did that. So you're deficient in your perspective. Verse 6, And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. Kind of sounds like Daniel 11 too, doesn't it? In the appointed time. For the mystery, now here's where, here's where Paul, like John, says, before the person comes, there's a principle at work. For the mystery of lawlessness, not the man of lawlessness now, but the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay 
with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, so as to be saved. You see, this is basically what Paul is saying. Just before the end of the age, just before Jesus Christ returns the second time, there's going to be a man, and this man will be the culmination or the expression of a principle that's already at work. This man of lawlessness who's coming by the activity of Satan. It's actually Satan who's behind this person. Satan is the, is the author here. This man will be full of deception, false miracles, and he will exalt himself above all gods and claim to be God in the temple of God. And what's going to come with that man's appearance is an apostasy. If you see in verse 3, those, those two things are supposed to be seen together, not as separate. When he says, first, in a, first the apostasy will, comes first and the man of lawlessness, that's one and the same thing to the Apostle Paul. The coming of the man and the apostasy happen together. And to really understand that phrase, one needs to have a little bit of background into um, actually the book of First Maccabees. Because the book of First Maccabees tells us of Antiochus Epiphanes, who was this figure in uh, the second century BC who did all sorts of things that resembled Antichrist. But one of the things he did is he basically said, all the religions of the peoples in my realm lose it, drop it, and we're going to now be one people with one new religion. And that religion is worship of Zeus, worship of the Greek gods, and all the other gods put away. And it says over and over there in 1 Maccabees that all these nations apostatized from their own religions. And there were some who wouldn't apostatize, and that was the Maccabeans. And so the apostasy, the background to this statement here is that it's not... It's actually not apostasy from the Christian faith per se, but it's a great apostasy that's going to take place when the Antichrist comes and begins to claim to be God, and the book of Revelation says that the world is going to worship him. That means the other religions are going to drop off. People are going to apostatize. People are going to fall away from their faiths and take up a new faith. That's the Maccabean background to this saying. But this Antichrist will be destroyed by Jesus' coming. This is what the book of Revelation shows us, where the beast, who's this man, he comes and gets the worship of the world, but he's destroyed by the coming of Christ. And, it, and the book of Revelation tells us the same thing that Daniel tells us, that this, this man comes in the days of ten kings with signs and wonders. He's worshipped, and then he's destroyed. So there's these similarities in all those visions. Typically, the church has called this man Antichrist. The word Antichrist means against Christ, or it could also mean in the place of Christ, like a counterfeit Christ or a substitute Christ. A false messiah. Jesus himself didn't use the word Antichrist, but he actually mentioned false messiahs. This Antichrist will be in the place of Christ, receiving worship, the worship that we now give to Jesus as Christians, Men will give worship to Antichrist, and he will be preaching lawlessness, the opposite of what Jesus preaches, right? 
to be preaching lawlessness. And it's this man, let's go back to Daniel 11, it's this man that Daniel gives us information about in detail. Historically, the Christian church has traditionally believed in a future personal antichrist. Uh, Dr. Stephen Miller, commenting on Daniel chapter 11, says this, Interpreting this passage to foretell Antichrist has been widely accepted, has been a widely accepted view since ancient times. And Young, Edward Young, who's actually an amillennialist, Edward Young rightly calls this the traditional interpretation in the Christian church. The traditional interpretation. Today, the majority of amillennial and premillennial scholars interpret this king to be Antichrist. So today, the majority of scholars, and it doesn't really matter what spectrum you're on in eschatology, we act, they actually see Antichrist in Daniel chapter 11. And this is called the traditional view of the church. If you don't believe in a future Antichrist, you're actually not believing the traditional view of the church. And that should concern you. It doesn't necessarily mean you're wrong. For 1,500 years, until the Reformation, the doctrine was that there would be a personal Antichrist before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right, right at the end of the age, there's going to be this evil man. During the days of the Reformation, the reformers who were fighting so passionately against the Roman Catholic Church actually began to equate the papacy with the Antichrist. And that became the uh, typical Protestant view of the day, that the, that the Antichrist was actually this papacy, the office of the papacy. Now, that view is not popular any longer in Protestantism today. Most Protestants don't believe that the papacy is the Antichrist. I think it would be more accurate to say that the papacy was, had the principle of Antichrist in it than to say that the papacy is the Antichrist, the coming guy that the Bible prophesies about. Because first of all, a, an office isn't a person, right? But I would agree with the reformers that the spirit of Antichrist was at work in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, the Catholics defended themselves against the Reformers, obviously, and they defended themselves in two ways. One was the typical way and the one that really stuck, and the other was a more novel way. The Catholic Church defended themselves by saying, no, Reformers, look, the Church has always believed, and the Scriptures are clear, that there's a future Antichrist who's going to come before Jesus returns. And so that's how the Catholics responded. They emphasized or re-emphasized the traditional doctrine there's a future Antichrist. Today, that is again the common view amongst Catholics and Protestants. The other way that they, I say they, some Catholics defended against the charge uh, was by introducing a novel theory, which is that Antichrist is past. They're saying, no, 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 you guys got it wrong. The Antichrist isn't the papacy. The Antichrist is, it's been fulfilled already in the past. This is a preterist view of the Antichrist. And the Protestants didn't accept that one until later on when the papacy view began to disintegrate that many, many Protestants have embraced the idea that the Antichrist is the past, but it's still a minority today. The majority traditional view remains that there is a future personal Antichrist and that Daniel 11 is talking about him. And I trust that as we go through this, you'll, you'll see that and that this will be settled in your mind. It's a very important point. I mean, it's a pretty important thing, isn't it, to get, to get that one wrong about what's going to happen right before the coming of 
of Jesus, especially if, it's, if it is all over the Bible, and it's obviously pretty important, right? This morning, I'm going to give an overview of the chapter so we can get our bearings, and I'm going to focus on the structure of the chapter and the chapter's chronology. Basically, where does it fit in time? Next week, we're going to look closer at the details. So let's look at verse 1 here. Daniel 11, verse 1. This verse actually best belongs with chapter 10. You'll see in verse 2 that it's in verse 2 when he actually starts giving the prophecy. It's when he starts giving the vision. So obviously, uh, well, in verse 1, he's just saying kind of what he said right beforehand in chapter 10, that I as an angel arose to be an encouragement to Darius to Mede. And we talked a little bit about that last week, how angels encourage and strengthen these leaders. Let's look at chapter 2. The prophecy begins here, and it runs all the way through to the end of chapter 12. It begins in verse 2, and it ends in, at the end of chapter 12. Verse 2 to 4 is, should be familiar history to us as Christians, or to anyone of the world. This is the history of the Persians and the Greeks. The Persians and Alexander the Great. And you should recognize this from chapter 8. Do you remember that, that ram and that goat in chapter 8? And it says that there's this ram, and he's doing what he wants. He's got one horn longer than the other, and he's doing what he wants. And then all of a sudden, this really angry male goat comes and destroys him and tramples on him and, and, just, and cuts him to pieces. What Daniel is seeing in chapter 8 is the exact same thing what the angel is saying here. You've got these kings of Persia, and, and then in verse 3 and 4, you've got Alexander the Great who comes against them and destroys them, but then is quickly himself uh, destroyed. He dies, and his kingdom is divided in four, in four quarters, or his kingdom is divided to four, in four realms. And so this is the same thing we see in Daniel chapter 8. So 2 through 4. Then in verse 5, all the way to verse 20, we have this really interesting uh, back and forth between the king of the north and the king of the south. And scholars are basically unanimously agreed upon this, that this is describing what's called in history the Syrian Wars. And this is the conflict between the the Seleucid realm of Alexander's kingdom and the Egyptian or Ptolemaic realm of Alexander's kingdom. So Alexander's kingdom was divided into four, and one of those was the Seleucid kingdom, and one of them was the Egyptian or Ptolemaic kingdom. And those guys just fought and fought and fought. And what makes this significant is that Israel is right smack in the middle of them. Okay, that's, that's actually why this is here. Israel is right between Egypt and the Seleucid, which is Syria and, and Babylon and Persia, that area. And these guys just beat heads against each other. And Israel is literally like a football who's going back and forth and back and forth between the king of the south and the king of the north. Just back and forth. Jerome tells us, It is not the purpose of Holy Scripture to cover external history apart from the Jews, but only that which is linked up with that nation. And so here, very clearly, this has to do with Israel. And you'll remember in chapter 10, the angel even said, right, I'm coming to give you a vision that has to do with your people, right? Now look at verse 21. So from verse 5 to 20, you've got the Syrian wars, back and forth, back and forth. But in verse 21 
through to verse 45, all the way to the end of this chapter, the prophecy follows the career of this one despicable person and his persecution of Israel. Over 50% of the prophecy deals with him. He is clearly the focus, and the first part, the Syrian wars, clearly is simply setting the stage for this man. But the rest of it is about him and what he does. Now we get to the odd thing, but the undeniable thing. The odd but undeniable thing is that this prophecy begins in ancient times, and it ends in eschatological or the end time. It begins in ancient times, and it ends in a future that hasn't even happened as of yet. It starts with the Persians and Alexander the Great, and it ends with Antichrist at the end of the age. And I'd like to give five reasons why this is so. First of all, if you go to chapter 10, verse 14, this is when the angel basically tells Daniel what this vision is all about. The angel says, Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision pertains to the days yet future. So this vision is about the latter days, and we talked about that phrase and how it means the end of days or the days, at, the days of the end. Not just, I've come to tell you what's going to happen in the future, but I've come to tell you what's going to happen at the end. So if this prophecy isn't talking about eschatological times or the Antichrist in the future, then the angel was really wrong. No, no, angel, this is actually talking about something that's a very long time ago. Now turn with me to chapter 12 and look at verse uh, 9. I want to point out another comment here by the angel. Chapter 12, verse 9, the angel says, Go your way, Daniel, for these words, what I've been telling you, are concealed and sealed up until the time of the end, or the end time. So what he says here is the, the words here that you've been given... They're sealed up until the end. So only when the end comes will they not be sealed. Now what does he mean by the end? Look at verse 13. Now he tells Daniel about the end again. As for you, Daniel, go your way to the end. Then, in the end, you will enter into rest and rise again, which is a, uh, uh, a mention of the resurrection. You will rise again for your allotted portion when? At the end of the age or the end of days, which is a, this is a, a common way of speaking about the very end, right when the age is over. You see that? So Daniel, this vision has to do with the end. It's all sealed up until the end. Go to the end and you will rise at that time and you will receive your portion at the end of the age. So isn't this strange? So we've got the vision starting in, with the, in the ancient world with the Persians and ending at the end of the age. Here's a second reason. In Daniel 11, verse 36 to verse 45, verse 36 to 45, these portions, this portion here, has no historical fulfillment. And that is not something that's disputed. But scholars of every stripe say, this passage in thir verse 36 to 45 didn't happen and it has not happened in history. We're going to talk more about that. 
So what that means is this couldn't have been fulfilled in history. That's an indicator that this has yet to be fulfilled. It's interesting that, uh, well, we'll talk about that in just a moment. Verse 36, also look at verse 36 for a third reason why this is talking about the future. In verse 36, the angel says uh, that the king will exalt himself above all that's called God and, and he will prosper, it says, until the indignation is finished. Now, do you remember that we talked about this concept of the indignation? The indignation refers to God's indignation against the broken covenant that Israel has broken. We talked about this as a, it's a major theme in Isaiah. It talks about how God is, has anger and indignation towards people because they violated his covenant. And he's punishing them over and over and over again. The prophets are always asking, when will your anger be over? When will the indignation be done? And God does promise there's coming a day when the indignation will be done. But there's only indignation because there's a broken covenant. Since God promises that one day the covenant, since one day there won't be indignation, it's because one day there won't be a broken covenant. And why is that? Because as the Bible tells us, God will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And at the end of 70 weeks, after all the indignation is exhausted, then Israel will become righteous through faith, as the prophets tell. And the covenant will no longer be based upon their keeping the law. It won't be based upon their works. That's shown in history not to work, and it never will work. Even though the Jews today still think, well... If we can just do a little better, maybe we'll attain righteousness. But as Christians, we know, no, there's no righteousness apart from Christ, apart from faith in him, apart from him giving his life for our sins and providing righteousness freely as a gift. One day Israel will realize that. Then there won't be any more indignation. That'll be the end. So verse 36 says, he'll prosper until the indignation is finished. Another clue that this obviously isn't historical because the indignation isn't finished yet. Fourthly, there's obvious similarities here with other eschatological scripture. For example, I read earlier 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul says, don't think that the uh, day of the Lord has come. That day is not going to come until the man of lawlessness is revealed who exalts himself above all gods. He's citing Daniel 11. Another indication that Daniel 11 is still yet future and not past. Because that's what's going to happen right before the day of the Lord. Or we can look at Matthew 24, where Jesus talks about the abomination of desolation right before the second coming. Or we can look at the book of Revelation, which talks about the same thing. Or Daniel chapter 7, and on and on. There's so many parallels with this prophecy, and those other passages are clearly eschatological. Fifthly, chapter 12, which is the latter part of this prophecy, is clearly eschatological. Look at verse uh, 2 and 3. For example... Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So the angel is here telling Daniel that at that time, there's going to be the resurrection of the dead. And we know that the resurrection of the dead is eschatological. It's when Jesus Christ returns. 
So here's the, here's the lay of the land here. Here's the, here's the problem. It starts in the ancient world. It ends in the future that hasn't come. And yet, if that's the case, how do we account for this prophecy? Because there's clearly a great lack of information. If you begin at the beginning of this prophecy and you take your baby steps and say, okay, then this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, it doesn't have enough stuff to get you to the end, right? It doesn't, all, it doesn't line up. It doesn't make it there. So how do we account for this? Well, let's look at this. In verse 2 and 4, I told you that Cyrus and Alexander are mentioned. And we'll see how it doesn't make it to the end. Verse 2, and f- two to 4 is Cyrus and Alexander. Verse 5 to 20 is the Syrian wars. That's from 305 B.C. to 175 B.C. And while it's certainly not a complete history, uh, the, the angel isn't giving everything in history that happened, it is remarkably accurate, this history, from 2 to verse 20. And even the liberals who don't believe in the supernatural agree that from verse 2 to verse 20, that is accurate stuff. That, that happened in history. In fact, the liberals think that this is proof of a late date. They think Daniel couldn't have prophesied this. No one can prophesy. No one can beforehand give so much details. And so they said, this is actually proof that Daniel was written after these events. Because they acknowledge that they are accurate. But the only reason they take that view, brothers and sisters, is because they don't believe in the supernatural. And I think it was the second sermon in this series, we talked about the issue of the authorship and the date, and we showed that the arguments are actually in favor of an early date, not a late date. The arguments are in favor of Daniel writing this in the time of, of Babylon and Persia, not later. The only thing is the supernatural, right? You either believe in that or you don't. Uh, Leon Wood, the commentator, writes that the details of this history as presented provides one of the most remarkable predictive prophecies of all scripture. There's over a hundred things that are prophesied here. It's an amazing section. I'm not going to be going through this section historically. I'm not going to be doing it this week or next week. If you'd like to go, if you'd like to look at all the history, just take, just grab any commentary on the book of Daniel and it will walk you through and show you how accurate it is in, in the events that took place. And we actually have a lot of historical sources from the ancient world that, that corroborate with Daniel's vision. Verse 21, then, brings us to the despicable person at about 175 B.C. This despicable person. Now, chronologically, if you trace the history of the Syrian wars from verse 5 to 20, and you arrive at verse 21, you would expect to be at 175 B.C. with none other than the individual in history called Antiochus Epiphanes. How many of you have ever heard of Antiochus Epiphanes? Very famous person in in Jewish history. In fact, here's the interesting thing, that starting in verse 21, when historically Antiochus would appear, many of the details here actually do resemble Antiochus Epiphanes. For example, Antiochus was despicable, He was a deceiver. He did attack Egypt. He was checked by the Romans on his advance to Egypt, which looks like verse 30. He even set up the abomination of desolation, at least according to the Jews. 
He went into the temple and desecrated it, and devoted it to Zeus, said, okay, no more Yahweh, it's all about Zeus now. And he even sacrificed swine on the altar to Zeus. And there, it was one of the most extreme times of persecution for Israel, one of the worst periods in their history. One of them, because they've had many. And therefore, many readers of the Bible, many scholars, actually think that verse 21 and on is indeed talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. So they think, okay, we end the Syrian war and we just keep on going with Antiochus, the next guy. Problem. Here's the problem with that. As I mentioned, verse 36 to verse 45 has no historical fulfillment or resemblance in Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus did not exalt himself above all gods. He did not disregard gods. In fact, the, the ancient historians who write about Antiochus, they actually say he was crazy. But they say he had basically one or two good points. The guy was nuts, but he had one or two good points. He was a pious person. That's one of the points about Antiochus. He really was devoted to the gods. I mean, one, he's one of the few characters in history that really sought to establish the worship of the Greek gods all over the place. Uh, there's no fulfillment of Antiochus of this last war in verse 40 to 45 of this final war. Antiochus did not attack down there. Um, and Antiochus didn't die in Israel. He died somewhere. He died in Persia. He died in the east. And so basically, there isn't a fulfillment of Antiochus here. And also, I mentioned other reasons why this is eschatological. Now, here's what the liberals do those who don't believe in the supernatural, they say, aha, this is proof. That This gives us the, the proof of exactly when Daniel wrote the book of Daniel. I mean, exactly. This shows us that Daniel actually was writing his prophecies, so-called, during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. And that's why half of it is right and half of it is wrong. You see? Half of it, he was just writing what he knew had already happened, but then... The other part, from 36 to 45, he guessed. He tried prophesying at that point. At that point, Antiochus says, okay, I'm going to try to encourage my brethren by, by telling what's going to happen. And it didn't happen. And so he was wrong. But he was right before, but now he's wrong. And that shows us when he wrote. Of course, that's driven by an anti-supernatural presupposition. Traditional commentators, traditional Christian commentators say, no, 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 no. Daniel didn't make any mistake. In fact, this is an angel relaying to Daniel. This is supernatural. At some point, this prophecy must shift. At some point, this prophecy must jump from the ancient world to the future world. Or to put it in a nutshell, at some point, there must be another gap in the prophetic map or program that brings us to Antichrist. Now, some might say at this point, oh, no, not another gap thing, right? <laughs> don't talk about gaps again. We don't like that gap idea. But I'd like to say this to you, brothers and sisters, that you have to get used to the idea of, of gaps because it's common and because it's the nature of prophecy because prophecy isn't history. Prophecy is prophecy, not history. Just like Jerome said, Historians want to write everything that happened. Prophecy is only is not writing history. It's only writing that which is significant. 
Joyce Baldwin says the same point. Prophecy usually highlights only certain significant features and passes over much that the historian would feel obliged to include. You have to get used to this idea that when God gives his prophecies, he gives these prophecies, and it's not this neat and tidy historical thing. He'll jump. He'll do gaps. It's not always the most natural reading. Let me give you an example, and this should, this should prove this point for us all. Look at Daniel chapter 11. Go to that section where the Persians and the Greeks are being mentioned, Alexander the Great. Verse 2. This is actually a gap that everyone acknowledges, even the most anti-gap people. <laughs> they hate gaps, and they have to acknowledge one here. And now I will tell you the truth, okay? This is the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than them all. As soon as he has become strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Now, all historians and commentators agree that the fourth Persian king is a guy by the name of Xerxes. Xerxes was extremely wealthy, and he was the guy who invaded Greece and ticked off all of the Greeks. Ticked them off so bad that Alexander the Great, when he came back and, and attacked the Persians, it was all revenge. And that's picked up in Daniel chapter 8 when that male goat comes against the ram. That male goat is so mad. Well, Daniel, uh, Alexander the Great was so mad at the Persians for invading them and causing all sorts of destruction and havoc in Greece. And it was Xerxes who did it. He was the fourth guy from Cyrus. Because Daniel is receiving this in the days of Cyrus. So he says three more kings are going to rise and then there's a fourth. And if you count them, Cyrus, uh, Cambyses, Smyrdas, and then Darius I, and then Xerxes who invaded Greece, ticked off the Greeks. Now look at verse 3. Who's next? And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases, but as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his descendants. Who's that? That's Alexander the Great, and nobody disagrees with it. That's Alexander. Well, hold on a second. You just jumped from verse 3 to verse 4, angel, in, ver in those verses, you just jumped over a, over a century. You skipped over a whole bunch of other Persian kings. You know there was 13 Persian kings in You skipped over eight of them. Over us. Over a century of history. This fourth king's going to rise and invade, and then a great king will arise. If you're reading it naturally, if you're just saying, well, the most natural thing is that the king comes up next, you've missed the whole point. You've missed the point that God jumps. There are gaps. Because he's not writing history, he's writing prophecy. He's telling you what's most important, what's most significant, what's most pertinent to the prophecy. Follow? And so here God sets a precedent, or here we see the, the reality of gaps. That um, sets a foundation for understanding a gap in chapter 9, as we looked at the gap between verse 26 and 27 in chapter 9, and also the reality of the gap later on in this very same chapter, where the angel stops history and jumps ahead to Antichrist. The question is not whether there is a gap, the question is where is it? 
That's the question in this chapter. Where does it jump to Antichrist? Now, there's basically two candidates or two places that scholars, that traditional scholars believe that the angel jumps forward from the ancient world to the future. Verse 21 is put forth as the place so that in verse 21, it says there arises a despicable person. That's the Antichrist. We just jump from the Syrian wars to the Antichrist. The other place is verse 36. So some scholars will say, no, no, verse 21 is in fact Antiochus Epiphanes, and his career flows on until verse 36. And since verse 36, after there's no fulfillment by Antiochus, it's in verse 36 that we jump to the Antichrist. But all are agreed that it jumps. And also all are agreed that Antiochus Epiphanes is a type or a pattern or a picture of the Antichrist and that it was, in fact, God's intention to mirror Antichrist with Antiochus. Okay? God is... So you might ask, well, why did God go through all the hassle of the Syrian wars if he's just jumping to Antichrist? Why would he bring us all the the way to Antiochus if he's just going to jump to Antichrist? And the point is exactly because God wants to mirror those two lives. Exactly because... Antichrist's career looks like Antiochus's and vice versa, and it sets the pattern, helps us see. I'm going to quote Jerome on verse 21. I believe that the jump is in verse 21, not in verse 36. I believe the jump starts in verse 21, as did Jerome many, many centuries before me. So what I'm saying here is nothing new or modern. Jerome wrote in the 4th century A.D. about verse 21. Up to this point, the historical order has been followed and there has been no point of controversy between Porphyry and those of our side. Porphyry was an anti-Christian. He he hated Christianity. He actually was writing a, a commentary on Daniel to refute Christianity. And Jerome says, Porphyry and I have no problems up until verse 21. But the rest of the text... From here on to the end of the book, he interprets as applying to the person of Antiochus, who is surnamed Epiphanes, but those of our persuasion believe all these things are spoken prophetically of Antichrist, who is to arise in the end time. That's Jerome. Why does does Porphyry want Antiochus to be the man that this chapter focuses on? Why does that anti-Christian want that? Because then he can say, ah, Daniel made a mistake. See, he was just writing at the... It's not prophecy at all. He was just writing at the time of Antiochus, and then he made a mistake. And Jerome says, no, no. Actually, this is talking about Antichrist from verse 21 on. Even though this passage resembles Antichrist, it, it, it resembles Antiochus, and I don't deny it. It cannot be him. Because just like we talked about in chapter 8, there's a resemblance but Antiochus loses in the details. I'd like to just wrap this up by mentioning, uh, giving four reasons why this is not Antiochus, but it's Antichrist. Why the jump happens at verse 21 and not verse 36. First of all, there's no reason to jump in verse 36. The, from verse 21 to 45, you've got one continuous career of one person. And when you hit verse 36, it says, the king. Who's the king? The king is the, the, the same guy that's been spoken of since verse 21. You just look at the antecedent. And so 
There is no reason to jump. It's much more natural to take verse 21 to 45 as one career. The guy who starts this thing is the guy who must finish this thing. So that's my first reason. There's really no reason to break up that one section. Secondly, commentators speak with precision from verse 5 to 20 when they're talking about the Syrian wars. They say, this happened in accordance with this in history, and this happened in accordance with this in history. But when you hit 21, the tone of the commentators begins to change, and you start hearing them use words like, perhaps, we don't know with certainty, maybe, it's likely. And even though there is a resemblance with Antiochus, the precision is lost when you, when you get to verse 21 on. There's, there's things here that just, they're guessing Antiochus did. Because it resembles him, they're saying, well, maybe he did do this, we don't know. For example, look at verse 21. It says, a despicable person will arise. Antiochus was despicable. But it says, on, the, on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, and he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. But when you learn about the history of Antiochus, how he actually became king in Syria... Uh, he actually was part of the royal family. He did have a claim to the throne, although he wasn't first in line. But there was a bit of a complication with his younger nephew, who was uh, first in line, and he ended up getting the kingship. And he was welcome. He didn't actually have to do anything that was underhanded to get it. Everyone in Syria was happy to receive him. And it wasn't in a time of tranquility. There was actually a person that wasn't part of the royal family who actually killed his brother trying to take the throne. And Antiochus stepped in and killed this usurper and saved the royal throne, <laughs> saved the throne, saved the royal family's claim to the throne. Everyone was happy with him. So it wasn't really in a time of tranquility. It was a, in a time of assassinations and things like that. And he was a part of the royal family. So maybe someone could worm out of that, but it doesn't seem like it's that exact. And there's other things as well. So... The precision is lost. That's the second point. Third point, there's an inseparable connection between chapter 11 and chapter 12 and certain points in chapter 11 and points in chapter 12. And chapter 12 is clearly future, not past. Look at verse 9 of chapter 12. And I think this is conclusive, by the way. Look at verse 9 of chapter 12. Notice the words very carefully. We're going to read 9 through 11. The angel said, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the time of the end, the end of the age. Now look what he says here. Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. That's roughly three and a half years. It's a little bit more, actually. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. Now look at chapter 11, and we're going to look at, a, at these verses that are before 36. Look at chapter 11, verse 31. Now this is apparently Antiochus, according to those who want to jump at verse 36. Verse 31, forces from him will arise and desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice. They will set up the abomination of desolation. So here the angel says that this man, this despicable person will do that. But then later in chapter 12, he says how long that is going to last for. And 
the amount of time that's given in chapter 12 for the amount of time the abomination is set up doesn't match history. Antiochus did set up this, did defile the temple and do that stuff, but it didn't last 1,290 days. It lasted much less than that. It lasted only three years, not three and a half and more. So right away we see that when in chapter 12, when there's an explanation of the time of what he said in chapter 11, we have a, an obvious discrepancy. But let's read on in verse 32 of 11. By smooth words he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant, but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. And when they fall, they will be granted a little help, and many will join them in hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, make them pure until the end time. Because it is still come, still to come at the appointed time. So here, notice the similarity in language. Wickedness, uh, insight and understanding. Look at verse 10 of chapter 12. And you've got... Um, Many will be purged, purified, and refined. So the language is very much the same. You can see they're talking about the same thing. And it's obvious chapter 12 is talking about the future. Lastly, in Matthew 24, verse 15, Jesus says, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, that's the time when you need to get out of Judea. Because why? then there's going to be a time of great tribulation unlike anything the world has ever seen up to that point and they'll never see another time like that again. And immediately after the tribulation of that time, then the Son of Man will come back and gather his elect. And according to Jesus, who's now hundreds of years after Antiochus Epiphanes, he says, you guys haven't even seen the abomination of desolation yet, spoken of by Daniel the prophet. He's citing Daniel 11 here. You guys haven't even seen it yet. It's yet to come. That means it's not Antiochus. And it's very clear Jesus is referring to this very same thing. He uses the same words. And even here, look at, look at Daniel chapter 12. Uh, the angel says, At that time there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. So right there, Jesus is citing Daniel 12 here. Jesus cites the abomination of desolation as well as the great tribulation. And he puts it all in the future, not in Antiochus' time. And he also uses the same language about his coming and the resurrection and the gathering of the saints as verse 2 and 3. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, the righteous will shine brightly like the sun in the heavens and like the stars. So according to Jesus, it wasn't fulfilled in the days of Antiochus. Brothers and sisters, it's more reasonable to jump at verse 21 and realize that Antiochus is only, Antiochus is only a type or a resemblance, but he's not the guy here being spoken of. From 21 to the end, that man, that career, is talking about that Antichrist whom we expect to come in the future before the end of the age, the same as the little horn of chapter 7 and 8, who will persecute the saints for a time, times and a half time, according to Daniel 7 and Daniel 12, verse 7, and according to the book of Revelation. Next week, we'll look more closely at the career of the Antichrist. Now, I'd just like to say this in conclusion. That the Christian church has traditionally not only believed in Christ, but it has also believed in Antichrist. The apostles didn't only teach about Christ, 
but they also taught about Antichrist. We believe in both as Christians. We believe in Christ and the spirit of Christ, and we believe in Antichrist and the spirit of Antichrist. We believe that just as the prophecies of Jesus' first coming were fulfilled, and also the prophecies of the second, so will the prophecies about the Antichrist be fulfilled. Paul says that the Antichrist will oppose God and exalt himself above God. The Antichrist is the opposite of Jesus. Because what did Jesus do? He submitted to the will of his Father. He didn't oppose God at any point, but he did all that the Father willed him to do. He humbled himself and gave glory to God. It was the Father's will for Christ to come and to preach all the things that he preached, all the things that he said, all the righteousness that he said were of the Father's will. And it was the Father's will for Jesus to come and serve mankind by dying for our sins. As Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to... And yet when we see the Antichrist, we see all of his words and all of his teachings are described by the Apostle Paul as lawlessness. The opposite of righteousness. The opposite of the truth of the law. The very same principle of lawlessness that work today in most of this world when they talk about righteousness, when they talk about unrighteousness and their lawlessness. And the Antichrist doesn't come to serve, does he? But he comes to be served. He comes to get the worship. That's what the devil's always wanted. He comes to get the worship of the entire world to himself. Remember, Jesus is worshipped not because he went, but because God exalted him and gave him a name above every other name because he humbled himself and made himself of no reputation and died for our sins. God exalted the lowly, but Antichrist went straight for the glory and will go straight for the glory. You see, by understanding Antichrist, we get insight and understanding into, uh, into Jesus Christ. We have a better understanding of Christ as well as vice versa. Antichrist preaches lawlessness. Jesus Christ preaches the law and righteousness. Antichrist opposes the Father and seeks the worship. Jesus does the will of the Father and serves mankind. Antichrist hates Israel. Jesus Christ loves Israel. Antichrist wants Israel's destruction, the destruction of God's people. Jesus Christ came for the salvation of God's people because he loves them. Let us thank God that it's Christ who is our Savior and it's not the Antichrist with whom we have to trust in. Amen? Let's thank God that it's Jesus Christ who is the object and the person of our worship and not Antichrist, who will be the person of worship for the rest of the world, and who in a sense already is. Are you thankful that you have Christ and not Antichrist, brothers and sisters? Are you thankful for Jesus Christ instead of this awful person? Let's thank God also that we haven't been deceived by the spirit of Antichrist, or if we have, he's delivered us from it, that we understand the truth of the law and righteousness, and that we've put our faith in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. And as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, let's remember that he came to serve us by giving his life for us, his body, his blood, the opposite of the Antichrist, so that we could be forgiven and live with him forever and ever and ever. As often as we drink the cup and eat the bread, Paul says, we do proclaim his death until he comes. Let's do that this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how powerful it is, how how true it is, 
and how everything will be fulfilled to the jot and to the tittle. Thank you for your plan for this earth and that you, Lord Jesus, have come and will come and you will deliver this world from all deception and lies. Thank you for your blood that was shed. Help us to remember this morning. Help us to respond to you in thanks and in praise. In Jesus' name, amen.